Section 9 of A Life's Morning. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shi Pingning. A Life's Morning by George Gissing. Section 9, Chapter 6. A Visitor by Express. It had been arranged that Emily should receive news from Wilfred by the first post on Monday morning. Her father left home at half-past eight, and Emily, a little ashamed at so deceiving him, went into the town at the same time on pretense of a desire to share his walk. Taking leave of him as soon as the mill was in sight, she walked towards the post-office, at this early hour there was no one before the counter. She overcame her nervousness and asked for letters. That which she expected was given to her, and at the same time a telegram. The sight of the telegram agitated her. Drawing aside, she opened it at once. Wilfred had dispatched it the previous night from London. I shall be in Dunfield at one o'clock tomorrow. Please leave a note for me at the post office. Appoint in any place of meeting at any time you like. I shall find a place from your description. The letter, as she could perceive by feeling it, was long. There was no necessity to open it until she reached home. But the note she must write at once. In agitation which would scarcely allow her to reflect, she left the office and sought a small shop where she could procure no paper. On her way she devised a plan for meeting. In the shop where she made her purchase, she was permitted also to write the note. Having stamped the envelope, she returned to the post office, and, to make sure that no delay might disappoint Wilfred, gave the letter into the hands of a clerk, who promised with a smile that it should at once be put into the right place. Emily found the smile hard to bear, but fortunately she was unknown. Then she set forth homewards. Such news as this, that she would see and speak with Wilfred in a few hours, set self-command at defiance. Between joy at the thought that even now he was nearing her, and fear of the events which might have led him to such a step she was swayed in a tumult of emotion she longed to open the letter yet felt she could not do so in the public roads she tried to think whether any ill chance could possibly interpose to prevent her being at the place of meeting none was to be anticipated unless what was very unlikely her mother should propose to join her afternoon walk. But what could his coming mean? She feared that she understood too well. Often she had to check the overhaste of her pace, and the way seemed terribly long, but at length she was at home and close shut in her bedroom. The letter did not aid her to account for his coming. It had been written late on Friday night, but made absolutely no reference to what had passed between Wilfred and his relations. It was a long and passionate poem of his love, concerned not with outward facts, but with states of feeling. Only at the end he had added a postscript, 
saying that he should write again on Monday. It was difficult to live through the morning. She felt that she must be busy with her hands, and her mother's objections notwithstanding, set herself resolutely to active housework. Her anxious feelings in this way toned themselves to mere cheerfulness. She listened with unfailing patience to the lengthily described details of domestic annoyances of which Mrs. Hood's conversation chiefly consisted, and did her best to infuse into her replies a tone of hopefulness which might animate without betraying too much. The hours passed over, and at length it was time to set forth. Mrs. Hood showed no desire to leave home. Emily, though foreseeing that she might again be late for tea, did not venture to hint at such a possibility, but started as if for a short walk. Not much more than a mile from Bambrick, in a direction away alike from the heath and from Dunfield, is the village of Pendell where stand the remains of an ancient castle very slight indeed are these relics one window and some shapeless masses of defaced masonry being alone exposed but a hill close beside them is supposed to cover more of the fabric though history tells not how or when the earth was so heaped up the circle of the moat is still complete and generally contains water. Pendle Castle Hill, as the locality is called, is approached by a rustic lane leading from the village. It is enclosed like an ordinary meadow, and shadowed here and there with trees. On Sundays and holidays it is a resort much favoured by Dunfieldians. At other times its solitude is but little interfered with. Knowing this, Emily had appointed the spot for the meeting. She had directed Wilfred to take a train from Dunfield to Pendle, and had described the walk up to the castle hill. He was not before her this time, and there were endless reasons for fear lest she should wait in vain. She remained standing on the inner side of the stile by which the field was entered and kept her gaze on the point where the lane turned. A long quarter of an hour passed, then of a sudden the expected form appeared. There had been no train to Pendle at the right time. He had taken a meal at Dunfield Station, and then had found a cab to convey him to the village. Wilfred was very calm. Only the gleam of his fine eyes showed his delight at holding her hands again. They walked to the side of the hill remote from the road. Wilfred looked about him and remarked that the place was interesting. He seemed in no hurry to speak of what had brought him here. They walked hand in hand like children. Emily, and then his name in return, with interchange of looks, was it not enough for some minutes? There is a fallen trunk, Wilfred said, pointing to a remoter spot. Shall we sit there? How well it has been managed, he exclaimed when they had seated themselves. You remember the fairy tales in which the old woman bids someone go to a certain place and do such and such a thing, and something is sure to happen, 
and it befell just as the old woman had said. And I am the old woman? They call her a witch in the stories. A witch, yes, but so young and beautiful. What delight it was to find your letter, dearest. What careful directions. I laughed at your dreadful anxiety to make it quite, quite clear. Won't you take the glove off? How your hand trembles. No, I will unbutton it myself. He kissed the fingers lightly, and then held them pressed. But why have you come all this distance, Wilfred? Would it not be enough if I said I had come to see you? What distance would be too far for that? But you were to have left England today. So I was, but I shall not go, till you go with me, Emily. She looked at him with anxious eyes. Well, I will tell you all there is to tell. In the first place, my father and my aunt think that the plan of your returning to teach the little girls is not a very good one. He spoke with perfect cheerfulness, but firmly, as was his wont. Emily's eyes fell. I have felt it myself, she said. And so have I, so that we are happily all agreed. We talked it all over after you had gone on Friday, and since then I have taken time to make up my mind. I can see that you would be uncomfortable in the house under such conditions. At the same time, it is certainly out of the question that you should go elsewhere. And so, come to London and let us be married as soon as the arrangements can be made. I don't quite understand, Wilfred. Do you mean that your father approves this? They all went off today. He knows, no doubt, what my intention is. In a matter like this, I must judge for myself. She was silent, then asked with apprehension. Has it caused a trouble? Of the kind which passes as soon as it has been well talked about, he answered with a smile, nothing more serious. She could not meet his look. And you wish not to return to Oxford? I have done with that. I see now that to go back and play the schoolboy would have been impossible. All that is over, and a new life beginning. You will be in readiness to come up as soon as I scot for you? She looked in his face now with pleading. It is too hasty, Wilfred. It was better, far better, that we should wait till next year. Can it be your father's wish that your marriage should take place in his absence? You know that I have no foolish desires. The more simply everything is done, the better it will please me. But I would, I would have it done with your father's good will. I foresaw his objections only too well. They are natural. It could not be otherwise. But I hope that time would help. Let us wait. She closed both hands on his and gazed at him steadily. I think you must be guided by me, Emily, he replied, with his calm self-assertiveness. There's no reason why we should wait. My father is a man who very sensibly accepts the accomplished fact. His own marriage, I may tell you, was an affair of decision in the face of superficial objections, and he will only think the better of me for following his example. You say, and I'm sure, that you care nothing for the show of a wedding. If you did, I should not be here at this moment. It is only for that 
that we need postpone the marriage i will take rooms till i can find a house and have it made ready for us emily kept silence she had released his hand there were signs on her face of severe inward conflict will you let me go and see your parents he asked shall our marriage take place here to me it is the same i would only be ruled by your choice may i go home with you now i would say yes if i could make up my mind to a marriage at once she answered dear let me persuade you the sound of your words persuades too strongly against their sense emily he said tenderly i will not put off our marriage a day longer than forms make necessary wilfred let me say what i have scraps of superstition in my nature he broke in with a half laugh fate does not often deal so kindly as in giving you to me i dare not seem even to hesitate before the gift it is a test of the worth that is in us we meet by chance and we recognize each other here is the end for which we might have sought a lifetime we are not worthy of it if we hold back from paltry considerations i dare not leave you emily everything points to one result the rejection of the scheme for your return my father's free surrender of the decision to myself the irresistible impulse which has brought me here to you did i tell you that i rose in the middle of the night and went to charing cross to telegraph it would have done just as well the first thing in the morning but i could not rest till the message was sent i will have no appearances come between us there shall be no pause till you bear my name and have entered my home after that let life do with us what it will emily drank in the vehement flow of words with delight and fear it was this virile eagerness this force of personality which had before charmed her thought into passiveness and made her senses its subject but a stronger motive of resistance actuated her now in her humility she could not deem the instant gain of herself to be an equivalent to him for what he would certainly and what he might perchance lose she feared that he had disguised his father's real displeasure and she could not reconcile herself to the abrupt overthrow of all the purposes wilfred had entertained before he knew her she strove with all the energy of her own strong character to withstand him for his good wilfred let it at least be postponed till your father's return if his mind is what you say he will by then have fully accepted your views i respect your father i owe him consideration he is prejudiced against me now and i will gain his good will just because we are perfectly independent let us have regard for others better a thousand times better that he should be reconciled to our marriage before it takes place than perforce afterwards is it for my constancy or your own that you fear i do not doubt your love and my own is unalterable i fear circumstances but what has fear to do with it 
i wish to make you my own the empire of my passion is all subduing i will not wait if you refuse me i have been mistaken you do not love me those are only words she answered a proud smile lighting the trouble of her countenance you have said that you do not doubt my love and in your heart you cannot answer me one question wilfred have you made little of your father's opposition in order to spare me pain is it more serious than you are willing to tell me the temptation was strong to reply with an affirmative if she believed his father to be utterly irreconcilable there could be no excuse for lingering yet his nobler self prevailed to her no word of falseness i have told you the truth his opposition is temporary when you are my wife he will be to you as to any wife i could have chosen i am convinced of it then more than ever i entreat you to wait only till his return to england if you fail then i will resist no longer show him this much respect dearest join him abroad now let him see that you desire his kindness is he not disappointed that you mean to break off your career at oxford why should you do that you promised me did you not promise me wilfred that you would go on to the end i cannot i have no longer the calmness no longer the old ambitions how trivial they were and yet there will come a day when you will regret that you left your course unfinished just because you fell in love with a foolish girl do not speak like that emily i hate that way of regarding love my passion for you is henceforth my life if it is trifling so is my whole being my whole existence there is no sacrifice possible for me that i should ever regret our love is what we choose to make it regard it as a foolish pastime and we are no better than the vulgar crowd we know how they speak of it what detestable thoughts your words brought to my mind have you not heard men and women those who have outlived such glimpses of high things as nature ever sent them making a jest of love in young lives treating it from the height of their wisdom forsooth as a silly dream of boys and girls if we ever live to speak or think like that it will indeed be time to have done with the world even as i love you now my heart's darling i shall love you when years of intimacy are like some happy journey behind us and on into the very portal of death regret how paltry all will seem that was not of the essence of our love and who knows how short our time may be when the end comes will it be easy to bear the thought that we lost one day one moment of union out of respect for idle prejudices which vanish as soon as they find themselves ineffectual will not the longest life be all too short for us forgive me the words dear love is no less sacred to me her senses were playing the traitor or which you will were seconding love's triumph i shall come home with you now he said you will let me 
why was he not content to win her promise this proposal by reminding her most strongly of the inevitable difficulties her marriage would entail forced her again into resistance not now wilfred i have not said a word of this i must prepare them for it you have not spoken of me i would not do so till i till everything was more certain certain he cried impatiently why do you torture me so emily what uncertainty is there everything is uncertain if you like to make it so is there something in your mind that i do not understand you must remember wilfred that this is a strange new thing in my life it has come to me so suddenly that even yet i cannot make it part of my familiar self it has been impossible to speak of it to others do you think i take it as a matter of course is your love less a magic gift to me i wake in a terror lest i have only dreamed of it but then the very truth comes back and shall i make myself miserable with imagining uncertainties when there need be none emily hesitated before speaking again i have told you very little about my home she said you know that we are very poor she could not say it as simply as she wished she was angry with herself to recognize how nearly her feeling was one of shame what a long habit of reason it needed to expel the unintelligent prejudice which the world bestows at birth i could almost say i am glad of it wilfred replied we shall have it in our power you and i to help so much there are many reasons she continued too much occupied with her thoughts to dwell on what he said why i should have time to prepare my father and mother you will let me write the things which it is not very easy to say say what you will and keep silence on what you will emily i cannot give so much consequence to these external things you and i are living souls and as such we judge each other shall i fret about the circumstances in which chance has cased your life as reasonable if i withdrew my love from you because one day the color of your glove did not please me time you need you shall have it a week ten days then i will come myself and fetch you or you shall come to london alone as you please let it be till your father returns but he will be two months away you will join him in switzerland your health requires it my health oh how tired i am of that word spare it me you at least emily i am well in body and mind your love would have raised me if i had lain at the point of death i cannot leave england alone i have made up my mind that you shall go with me have i then no power to persuade you you will not indeed refuse he looked at her almost in despair he had not anticipated more than the natural hesitancy which he would at once overcome by force of passion there was something terrible to him in the disclosure of a quiet force of will equal to his own 
frustration of desire joined with irritated instincts of ascendancy to agitate him almost beyond endurance emily gazed at him with pleading as passionate as his own need do you trust me he asked suddenly overcome with an intolerable suspicion at the same moment he dropped her hand and his gaze grew cold distrust you she could not think that she understood him do you fear to come to london with me wilfrid her bosom heaved with passionate resentment of his thought is that how you understand my motives she asked with tremulous subdued earnestness fixing upon him a gaze which he could not meet yes he answered below his breath in a moment when love of you has made me mad he turned away leaning with one hand upon the trunk in the silence which followed he appeared to be examining the shapeless ruins which from this point of view stood out boldly against the sky when was this castle destroyed he asked presently in a steady voice he received no answer and turned his eyes to her again emily's face was drawn into a hard intensity he laid his hand once more upon hers and spoke with self-control you do not know the strength of a man's love in that moment it touched the borders of hate i know that your mind is incapable of such a suspicion try to think what it meant to be possessed for an instant by such frenzy you felt able to hate me she said with a shake in her voice which might have become either a laugh or a sob then there are things in love that i shall never know because your soul is pure as that of the angels they dream of i could not love you so terribly if you were not that perfection of womanhood to which all being is drawn send me to do your bidding i will have no will but yours how the light of rapture flashed at vart her face it was hard for her to find words that would not seem too positive too insubmissive only till you have lived with your father in the thought of this thing she murmured and until i have taught myself to bear my happiness are we not one already dear why should you needlessly make your life poorer by the loss if only for a time of all the old kindnesses i think i know that in a few days your mind will be the same as my own do you remember how long it is since we first spoke to each other not so many days as make a week he answered smiling it's not that hard to believe and hard to realize that the new world is still within the old sweet still eyes give to me zine of your wisdom but you have a terrible way of teaching calmness you will go straight to the continent wilfred only with one promise and that you will bow to my judgment when i return my fate shall be in your hands they talked still while the shadows of the ruins moved ever towards them all the afternoon no footsteps had come near it was the sight of two strangers which at length bade emily think of the time 
It was after six o'clock. Wilfred, I must go. My absence will seem so strange what fables I shall have to invent on the way home. Do you know of any train that you can leave by? No, it matters very little. I suppose there is a mail some time tonight. I will go back to Dunfield and take my chance. How tired you will be. Two such journeys in one day. And a drought of the water of life between them. But even now there is something more I ask for. Something more? One touch of the lips that speak so nobly. It was only then that her eyes gleamed for a moment through moisture. But she strengthened herself to face the parting, in spite of a heaviness at the heart like that which she had felt on leaving the firs. She meant at first to go no further than the stile into the lane, and there Wilfred held out his hand. She used it to aid herself in stepping over. I must go as far as Pendle Station, she said. Then you can look at the timetable and tell me what train you will take. They walked the length of the lane almost in silence, glancing at each other once or twice. At the village station, Wilfred discovered that a good train left Dunfield shortly after nine o'clock. From Pendle to Dunfield there would be a train in a quarter of an hour. They stood together under the station shed. No other passenger was waiting, and the official had not yet arrived to open the booking office. "'When shall I hear from you?' Emily asked, putting off from instant to instant the good-bye which grew ever harder to say. "'In less than a week. I shall leave London early tomorrow morning.' but it will give you no time for rest. I am not able to rest. Go as often as you can to the castle, that I may think of you as sitting there. I will go very often. She could not trust herself to utter more than a few words. As she spoke, the station master appeared. They moved away to the head of the stairs by which Emily had to leave. I shall see your train tonight as it passes Pendle, she said. Then there was the clasp of hands, and good-bye. To Emily the way was dark before her as she hurried onward. Mrs. Hood had subsided into the calm of bitter resignation. Emily found her in the kitchen, engaged in polishing certain metal articles, an occupation to which she always had recourse when the legitimate work of the day was pretty well over. Years ago, Mrs. Hood had not lacked interest in certain kinds of reading, but the miseries of her life had killed all that. The need of mechanical exertion was constantly upon her. An automatic conscience refused to allow her repose. When she heard Emily entering by the front door, a sickly smile fixed itself upon her lips, and with this she silently greeted the girl. "'It is too bad of me, mother,' Emily said, trying to assume playfulness, which contrasted strangely with an almost haggard weariness on her face. You will give me up as hopeless. I will promise, like the children, that it shall never happen again. It is your holiday, my dear, was the reply, as Mrs. Hood went to stir the fire. You must amuse yourself in your own way. Of course you have had tea, 
I really want nothing till supper time. It was not worthwhile to make tea for one, said her mother with a sigh. And you have had none? Then I will make it this minute. When will father be home? It is quite uncertain. He gets more and more irregular. Why should he be kept so beyond the proper time? It is really too bad. My dear, your father is never satisfied with doing his own work. He is always taking somebody else's as well. Of course, they find that out and they put upon him. I've talked and talked, but it's no use. I suppose it'll go on in the same way to the end. Half an hour later, Mr. Hood reached home, as usual, worn out. The last half-mile of the walk from Dunfield was always a struggle with exhaustion. He had to sit several minutes before he was able to go upstairs to refresh himself with cold water. I met Mrs. Cartwright, he said, when an unexpected cup of tea from Emily's hands had put him into good spirits. Jessie got home on Saturday and wants you to go and see her, Emily. I half promised you would call tomorrow morning. Yes, I will, said Emily. I don't think it's altogether right, remarked Mrs. Hood, that Emily should have to work in her holidays, and I'm sure it's all no use. Jessie Cartwright will never do any good if she has lessons from now to doomsday. Well, it's very necessary she should, replied Mr. Hood. However they live as they do passes my comprehension. There was Mrs. Cartwright taking home fruit and flowers which cost a pretty penny, I'll be bound. And her talk. I thought I should never get away. There's one thing. She never has any but good-natured gossip. I never leave her without feeling that she is one of the best-hearted women I know. I can't say that her daughters take after her, Mrs. Hood remarked soothed as always by comment upon her acquaintances amy was here the other afternoon and all the time she never ceased making fun of those poor wickenses it really was all i could do to keep from telling her she ought to be ashamed of herself mary wilkins at all events makes no pretenses she may be plain but she's a good girl and stays at home to do what's required of her. As for the Cartwright girls, well, we shall see what happens some day. It can't go on, that's quite certain. I don't think there's any real harm in them. They are thoughtless, but then they are very young. They oughtn't to have so much of their own way. What's your opinion of Jessie, Emily? Do you think she'll ever be fit to teach? She might, if she could live apart from her mother and sisters for a time. I think she'll have to come here for her lessons. It's out of the question to do anything at that house. It was Mr. Hood's habit to spend his evenings in a little room at the top of the house, which he called his laboratory. It was furnished with a deal table, a couple of chairs, and some shelves. On the table was his apparatus for the study of electricity mostly the product of his own ingenuity also a number of retorts crucibles test-tubes and the like wherewith he experimented chemically the shelves exhibited bottles and jars and the dozen or so volumes which made his scientific library 
these tastes he had kept up from boyhood there was something pathetic in the persistency with which he clung to the pretense of serious study though the physical fatigue which possessed him during his few hours of freedom would in any case have condemned him to mere trifling often he came upstairs lit his lamp and sat for a couple of hours doing nothing more than play with his instruments much as a child might at other times a sudden revival of zeal would declare itself and he would read and experiment till late in the night always in fear of the inevitable lecture on his reckless waste of lamp oil in the winter time the temperature of this garret was arctic and fireplace there was none still he could not intermit his custom of spending at least an hour in what he called scientific study with the result that he went to bed numbed and shivering it was but another illustration of possibilities rendered futile by circumstances it was more than likely that the man might with fair treatment have really done something in one or other branch of physics to emily who strove to interest herself in his subjects out of mere love and compassion he appeared to have gained not a little knowledge of facts and theories she liked to encourage herself in the faith that his attainments were solid as far as they went and that they might have been the foundation of good independent work it helped her to respect her father will you come up to-night emily he asked with the diffidence which he always put into this request she ascended with apparent cheerfulness and they climbed the stairs together the last portion of them was uncarpeted and their footsteps sounded with hollow echoes under the roof it was all but dark by this time mr hood found matches on the table and lit the lamp which illuminated the bare whitewashed walls and sloping ceiling with a dreary dimness there was no carpet on the floor which creaked as they moved here and there when her father was on the point of drawing down the blind emily interposed do you mind leaving it up father of course i will he assented with a smile but why the last daylight in the sky is pleasant to look at on the landing below stood an old eight-day clock so much service had it seen that its voice was grown faint and the strokes of each hour that it gave forth were wheezed with intervals of several seconds it was now striking nine and a succession of long-drawn ghastly notes seemed interminable the last daylight how often our lightest words are almonds faded out of the sky emily kept her eyes upon the windows none the less she tried to understand what her father was saying sufficiently to put in a word now and then but her sense of hearing was strained to its utmost for other sounds there was no traffic in the road below and the house itself was hushed the ticking of the old clock performed with such painful effort that it ever seemed on the point of failing was the only sign of life outside the garret at length emily's ear caught a remote rushing sound her father's low voice did not overcome it these compounds of nitrogen and oxygen he was saying 
are very interesting nitrous oxide you know is what they call laughing gas you heat solid nitrate of ammonia and that makes protoxide of nitrogen and water the words conveyed no sense to her though she heard them the rushing sound had become a dull continuous thunder her eyes strained into the darkness of a sudden the horizon flamed a train was passing a quarter of a mile away and the furnace door of the engine had just been opened to feed the fire whose strength sped the carriages to far-off london a streaming cloud of smoke reflected the glare it was as though some flying dragon vomited crimson fumes involuntarily the girl half rose from her seat and pointed what is it asked her father looking round ah pretty sight that fire on the smoke well this part of side of nitrogen you see end of section nine chapter six recording by shi ping ning